This is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ again, and I am so excited about this lesson that you're about to hear. In 2005, we had a vacation Bible school that focused on the reasons we can believe. Brother Greg Gwynn, who at this time lives in Columbia, Tennessee, and preaches the gospel there, came to the Franklin Church and taught our adult class. We've recorded all of those lessons. There were five of them. You're about to listen to the very first one that says, We Believe in God. Open your Bibles and follow along and learn why we can believe in God, no matter what all the skeptics and critics say. My dad would say, if I ever get in trouble, if I'm ever arrested, be sure and get Perry Mason to be my attorney. Of course, the reason behind that was because Perry Mason never lost a case. Perry Mason was a master. He would win all of the cases. People would be charged with all kinds of crimes, and he would get them off. Because Perry Mason knew how to present the evidence. You know, he even had a, that private investigator, Paul Drake, who went around and found out all that evidence, and Perry Mason would present it just at the right instant in the trial, and his client would always get off. And so he was a master at gathering and evaluating and presenting evidence. Well, this week, as we study together, I want to kind of put you in the Perry Mason mode. We're going to be thinking about evidence. We're going to be considering evidence, gathering evidence, and preparing ourselves so that we can share that evidence with other people. But we're going to be talking about things that are a lot more important than any trial that ever took place in a human court. We're going to be talking about things that have to do with eternity, with God, and with serving Him. And so I hope that you'll carefully consider the things that we're going to be studying this week. And we're going to ask you, actually to be the judge. We want you to be the judge of some very important matters. For instance, we're going to talk, be talking about the existence of God. Do you believe there is a God? Are you able to establish that faith in your own heart? Can you convince others concerning the reality of God? We're also going to talk about Christianity and whether it's credible or not. Is the very basis of Christianity uh, reasonable and logical? Do we have reason to accept the things that are taught concerning Jesus Christ and serving Him? We're going to talk about the Bible. Is it reasonable to believe the Bible? You know, this is an important fundamental thing to, uh, thing to consider. Uh, we take a lot of stock in the Bible. I imagine most of you have carried with you tonight your Bible and brought it here. But have you ever tried to Teach someone who didn't have that same confidence in the Bible that you have? You know, we sort of take that for granted. But is it really reasonable to believe the things the Bible teaches? Furthermore, when the Bible tells us things, can we believe them to be true? Are the Scriptures reliable in the information that they give to mankind? Now, as you look at that set of questions, let me ask you, have you ever thought about those things? Have you ever had some of those questions in your mind? If so, I would actually commend you. It is appropriate, it's proper for us to ask those kinds of questions. We need to ask them, and we have to find the evidence that convinces us one way or the other. And so that's what we're going to be doing this week. For any who might be here studying with us, and, and you're not at the point of faith yet, Maybe you have not come to believe the basic fundamentals about God, about Jesus as His Son, about the Bible as the inspired Word of God. If that's the case with you, we're very glad that you're here, and we hope that you'll carefully think about the things that we're going to be studying. 
But for those of us who are already believers, I believe that such a study is valuable as well because it helps strengthen our faith. It helps make us stronger in these important fundamentals. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter wrote, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Peter said that we are to be ready always to give an answer. And actually, a literal translation of that uh, expression suggests the idea of making a defense. Not just giving an answer, but actually making a defense of the things that you believe. And so as Christians, we're obligated to not only be able to tell someone, this is what I believe, but also to be able to say why. I believe this and this is why I believe it. And so we need such a study. Why do you believe the Bible? If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, if you are already at the point of faith, we would ask you why. Can you explain why you believe? It's not enough to say, I believe because my mom and dad believed and they taught me that. It's not enough to say that I believe because most of my friends believe these things. In fact, it's not even enough to say, I believe this is so because the Bible says so. Because you've actually got to step back one step further than that and prove that the Bible's true. Now, if we can prove that the Bible's true, then we can say, I believe this because the Bible says so. So we need to find some very basic fundamental bits of evidence that convinces us that it's more reasonable to believe than to not believe. And that's what we're going to be doing this week. In Psalms 119, in verse 46, the psalmist said, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings, and will not be ashamed. That's what we want to be able to do. That we can stand before anybody, even great and powerful people, and describe our faith and tell people why we believe and not have any sense of shame. That Because we're telling them about the things that are proper, logical, and reasonable. Now, we understand, of course, that not everybody is going to be convinced. Uh, That's always been the case. Uh, During the lifetime of Jesus in John chapter 11, beginning verse 43, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, and he that was dead came forth. Jesus raised a man from the dead. Now, you would think that if people were there and they observed that, they saw a dead man raised from the dead, you would think, well, that would convince everybody. Surely everybody would be convinced. But notice as the text goes on, many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. And then from that day forth they took counsel together to put him to death. Isn't that amazing? Here were people who could see that evidence. First-hand witnesses of the mighty, miraculous power of Jesus. And yet their reaction to that was, we want to see this fellow dead. We want to kill him. And so we're we're aware of the fact, we're aware of the reality that not everyone will be persuaded by the evidence. But we think that for those who have an open mind and who will seriously and honestly consider the evidence, the conclusion is clear. In fact, it's inescapable. It's more reasonable to believe than to not believe. And that's our study for this week. We appreciate your presence here tonight very much. Glad that you've chosen to be a part of what we're doing here tonight and throughout this week. And we hope you'll be here every night because the studies sort of build one upon another. They're all related to one another. And we hope that you'll be here uh, to take part in all that. I want to express my appreciation for being invited to participate. And I hope that we'll have a very good study throughout the week. As Edwin already said, if you have any questions, uh, if there's things that you'd like to study in more detail, just say the word. and We'll certainly try to make ourselves available to you for that.
But again, thanks for being here to be a part of this tonight. Well, where are we going to start? Where's the proper place to start? We're going to start tonight with what I think is the necessary first lesson, and that has to do with God. And we'll simply make the statement, I believe that there is a God. Uh, you know, it's interesting that when you read the Bible, there's really no formal argumentation for the existence of God. Instead, the Bible just starts out by saying, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And so the Bible sort of speaks with an assumed understanding of the existence of God. But even having said that, I think that God can be proved, that the reality of God can be proved, again, to a fair-minded observer. Now, the nature of our proof is interesting. The type of proof that we have to use concerning God is not of the empirical nature. Uh, empirical evidence is, is of this sort. Let's say, and we've got a picture of a fellow here standing by a laboratory table with a beaker of water and over a Bunsen burner. And I've done, I've made that illustration for the purpose of suggesting, you know, what if a person doubted that you could turn liquid water into vapor and that you could make water disappear from a container to vanish into clear air? Someone said, I don't believe you can do that with water, can you? And I said, yeah, you just sit right there and watch. And so we started an experiment. We take that beaker of water and we heat it up and it begins to boil and pretty soon it boils away. And it's all gone. And the fellow says, well, he says, I saw that, but I still don't believe it. So you just stay right there and we'll do it again. We'll, we'll do that experiment over again. And so we get another beaker of water and we boil it away. And we can do that as many times as it takes. If it takes three, four, five, ten, a hundred times, we can repeat the experiment over and over again until this fellow finds, well, I, I have to believe it. I saw it with my own eyes. I observed it. Now, that's a powerful form of evidence, obviously, if we can have that sort of evidence. But clearly, in the case of God, and proving God, we can't do it. We can't go into a laboratory and say, now listen, we're going to do this, and by, and by virtue of following this process, in the end, you're going to see God. can't do that. There's no laboratory in the world that would allow us to accomplish that kind of an experiment or to provide that kind of evidence. Now, when we admit that, there are some people who say, well, if you can't do that, then you can't prove it. If you can't do that, then you can't prove God. No, that's a mistaken understanding about evidence. Now, that's a powerful kind of evidence. That empirical evidence is a powerful sort of evidence. But there's another kind of evidence. There is evidence that we call prima facie evidence. And I've drawn a picture of a man's hand with a gun in it up here. Let's say that a murder has taken place. No one saw the murder occur. There are no eyewitnesses. No one saw it. And obviously, by the very nature of the thing, you can't repeat it for further observation. Of the man. In other words, a man has been murdered. He's dead. The deed is done. You can't go into a laboratory and repeat it again and again, like we were talking about earlier. But, let's say that we found the gun. Now, you know, we've all watched those crime shows on TV enough to know that you know, they can take the bullet from the man who was killed and they can put the bullet under a microscope and they can study it and they can tell you from what gun it was shot. So they've taken the bullet from the gun. Now they know that this gun shot that man dead and they found out that the gun belongs to me. Furthermore, they have found out that my, 
fingerprints are on the gun. And beyond that, they heard me and the guy who is now dead in a terrible heated argument, and they heard me say, I'm going to kill you. Now, if you had that kind of evidence, and if you could put that together, could you convict me of a crime? You better believe you could. I mean, they'd throw me under the jailhouse, wouldn't they? With that much evidence, it would be easy to convict a person of murder. But think about it. Nobody saw it happen. Nobody witnessed the murder. And yet, by putting together the pieces of evidence, you can, you can build a convincing, compelling case. You can convict a man of murder, though no one saw it, and the deed cannot be repeated. Now, that's the kind of evidence that we're talking about when we talk about the evidence for God. No one can see God. We can't go into a laboratory and produce Him for observation. But we can prove there's a God by the, base, by the basis of accumulated evidence that leads to that inescapable conclusion. Now, what is some of that evidence? How do we know that there's a God? What's some of that kind of prima facie evidence that builds the case, that leads to the conclusion that there's a God? Well, first of all, we could talk about cause and effect. You know, there is a very simple law of cause and effect. It says that every effect demands an adequate cause. And so if you see something happen, you understand that something causes it to happen. For instance, what if you were sound asleep in the middle of the night, and suddenly you're jarred awake by this terrible screeching electronic noise? You know, and you, your eyes are just, you have to force them open, your head is just groggy, but... Pretty quick, you try to assimilate the data that's coming in. That's the smoke detector going off. That's what that is. That's the smoke detector making that horrible screeching noise. And so what you do is you just roll over and go back to sleep. No, you can do that. When you, when you finally get your head cleared enough to say, that's the smoke detector going off, then you jump out of bed to find out what's causing that to happen. Now, it might be a faulty alarm, right? It could be a smoke detector going bad making the noise. But there's at least the high probability that there's something in the house smoking, something's on fire. You're going to find out what's causing that. The effect is the, the alarm going off. You want to know what the cause is, cause and effect. Well, when we talk about God, we use that same kind of reasoning or argumentation. Every effect, everything you see, has to have been caused by something. Every effect demands an adequate cause, cause and effect. Well, what about some of the things that we see? For instance, what about the physical universe around us? Um, how did the universe get here? Now, the universe is an effect. In other words, it's here. We observe it. We see it. The universe is here. What caused it to be here? If it's here, there must be a cause, right? Cause and effect. So what caused the universe to be in existence? You have to be able to explain that. Whether you're a believer in God or not, logic demands that you give a reasonable answer. How did the universe get here? Well, there are only three options that I can imagine as to how our universe... Now, you go out and we're talking about planet Earth, the moon, but not only the moon, the sun, our solar system. We're talking about the vast expanses of the universe and the billions of stars... How did they get here? Well, again, I think there are only three possible options. One option is that the universe is eternal. That is, it always existed. 
it's here because it always has been here. That'd be one possibility. Another possibility is that the universe created itself. It's here because it, with, within natural means and its own processes, the universe created itself. Or the third option is that the universe was created by some force outside of itself and superior to it. Now, would you agree with me that those are the only three options when it comes to the explanation of the physical universe? Let's take those one at a time. Let's, let's talk about the idea that the universe is eternal. Is it possible that our universe has always existed and that's why it's here today, because it always was? Well, scientists tell us no. Scientists tell us that that is not the case. Dr. Robert Jastrow, writing in a book called Until the Sun Dies, said, quote, As a result of the most recent discoveries, we can say with a fair degree of confidence that our universe has not existed forever. Now, this is a scientist writing from a scientific standpoint. He says, we understand that the universe has not existed forever, that it began abruptly, without any apparent cause, in a blinding event that defies scientific explanation. And so here's a scientist who says, I understand, from a scientific standpoint, the universe has not always been here. We understand that it had a beginning. Now, we don't understand that beginning. Scientifically, we can't explain it. But we understand that the universe had a beginning. You know, there's a great debate about the age of the universe. And some would have us to believe that the universe is very ancient, billions of years old. We'll talk some about that in another study this week. But it's interesting to me that the very fact that scientists try to ascribe an age for the earth and universe, and we're not talking about whether it's young or old right now, we'll talk about that later in the week, but by virtue of the very fact that scientists attempt to ascribe an age for the universe, even if it's billions of years old, their assignment of an age for the universe indicates that they understand the universe is not eternal. Do you see what we're saying? And so in regards to that option, it doesn't work. Now, what about the option that the universe created itself? Now, I think that all of us who have any sense of logic or reason at all understand that material things, physical things, do not create themselves. What if I were to tell you, for instance, that earlier, before most of you arrived here, Edwin and I were standing up here in front, and that communion table there just materialized out of thin air. It just showed up. It, just, it, was just, it wasn't there, and then suddenly it was there. It created itself into existence. You'd think I was crazy, wouldn't, I? wouldn't you? I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe that for a minute. There's no way that that table just created itself there. There's no sense in that. That doesn't work, and we know that that doesn't work. Now, I want to tell you something. If that simple table couldn't create itself, then there's no way that this vast universe could create itself either, right? We understand that nothing can come from nothing. And even scientists acknowledge the fact that nothing comes from nothing. Nothing creates itself. And so even from a, again, from a scientific standpoint, that argument doesn't work. And so that really leaves us with only one alternative. In other words, by process of elimination, how did the universe get here? Well, it's not eternal, and it didn't create itself. And therefore, that demands the only other option that works, that's even feasible, is that the universe was created by some force outside of itself and superior to it. And that is the answer to the question. 
The universe was created. It, it, it did not exist before, and then it did. And God is the one who caused that to be. Uh, God is of a different nature than the universe. He's superior to it, and He existed before it did. God is that uncaused first cause. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 3 and verse 4, the Hebrew writer says, For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Now, do you get the gist of the argument that the Hebrew writer is making there? You're driving down the road, and you see a house sitting there by the side of the road. Maybe it wasn't there the last time you were down that road. We drove up from Columbia tonight up Highway 31. We could not believe all the construction taking place along 31 there around Thompson Station. There's stuff there that wasn't there the last time I drove up that way. Am I to believe that that just materialized? That those buildings just materialized? No. I mean, I don't know who built those buildings, and I didn't see it happen, but when I see a building standing there by the side of the road, I know that someone built it. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying here. Every house you see a house, you know that every house is built by someone. And he says that is the same thing about the physical universe. He, he that built all things is God. In Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, I want you to concentrate especially on this phrase, the invisible things of him, talking about God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Do you get that? The, the, in the book of Romans here, Paul is arguing... You can't see God, but you can see the things that God made. And when you see the things that God made, you have to understand and believe that there is a God. He's basically making the argument that we're making here, cause and effect. When you see the effect, the very existence of the universe, the things that God made, then you understand something about the invisible God. In fact, he says it's so clear that those who do not accept it are without excuse. And so the first line of reasoning that we would make, or the first kind of argument that we would make about the existence of God, is that every effect demands an adequate cause. Secondly, we would argue that the universe shows really abundant signs of an intelligent designer. I heard a story once about Sir Isaac Newton, the famous scientist. And he himself, I understand, was a firm believer in God. But he had a friend who was an atheist. Well, Newton, according to this story, assuming it's true, had a working model of the solar system constructed. It had a sun, and it had the planets around the sun. But it was designed cleverly in such a fashion that you could turn a crank, and the planets would actually revolve around the sun. And it was apparently a fairly neat working model. He had it sitting on his desk in his office, and his, his friend, who was an unbeliever, an atheist, came in. He saw this, was immediately drawn to it, cranked the handle a time or two, saw the planets as they did their thing, and he said, this is marvelous. It's incredible. He said, who made this? And Sir Isaac Newton decided to serve that as an object lesson. He said, no one made it. The fellow says, what? Someone made this? Who made it? Tell me who made this thing. He said, no one made it. It just, it was just there. It just appeared there. 
The fellow said, you, you must think I'm some sort of a fool. You know that someone made this. Who, tell me who made this thing. He let it sink in for just a minute, and then he said, you will not accept that this simple model could have created itself or caused itself to exist. But you believe that the reality of what that model represents did just that, created itself and exists without a creator. Supposedly, the story goes that his atheist friend became a believer. You see the point? Here, here this fellow would not believe that a simple working model of the solar system could have created itself, but he wanted to believe that the solar system itself could have created itself. That just doesn't make any sense, does it? It's not logical. When we stop to think about the amazing design of the universe, it is a proof that there must be an intelligent designer. You might use the example about the communion table uh, again. What if... You, you, you wouldn't believe me if I told you that that table created itself, that it just appeared there. So let me modify my story a little bit. Let me say that Edwin and I were up here talking before the rest of you arrived, and there was a pile of lumber laying right there, but that, and so, it, so the material was here, but then it just suddenly organized itself into this finished fashion. So I'm not trying to get you to believe that the material appeared out of thin air, but I want you to believe that it designed itself into this form and fashion. Now, will you believe that? You won't believe that either, will you? You know that the very appearance of that table suggests that someone took the time to design it and to build it. It shows evidence of design. And that's what we're saying about the physical universe. The physical universe shows abundant sign of an intelligent creator. For instance, we could talk about the stars and the planets for a minute. You know, our sun is a huge thing, approximately a million times bigger than our planet Earth, but it's just a star. It's really just an average star. It's estimated that there are a hundred billion stars in our galaxy, we, we exist in the Milky Way galaxy, and there are an estimated 100 billion stars in our galaxy, and there are an estimated billion galaxies. Think about that. So there's 100 billion stars like our sun in our galaxy, and there are a billion such galaxies. Now, when you take that all into consideration, and consider the fact that all of this, works and moves and operates like clockwork. How did that all happen? How did the, the amazing clockwork precision of our universe, how did, that, how did that take place? We talk about the relationship between the sun and the earth. I uh, challenge you to remember back to your science classes in school. How far is the, how far is the earth from the sun? 93 million miles, right? You know, that's not just by accident. That's actually a very critical distance. Scientists tell us that if the Earth were 5% closer to the sun than it is, we would all burn up. All the water on the Earth would vaporize and we couldn't live here. If we were just 5% closer to the sun than we are. If we were 5% farther away from the sun than we are, all the water on the Earth would freeze. We couldn't live here. Everything would be frozen rock solid. There's a very critical, narrow little band in which the Earth could orbit the sun to sustain life on the planet. Well, obviously we're in that band. Is that by accident? 
or by design. We think about the rotation of the earth on its axis. You know, not only are we going around the sun, but the, obviously the earth is spinning on its axis. The angular velocity of the, of the, of the earth's rotation on its axis is about a thousand miles per hour. Hold on to your seat. We're moving about a thousand miles per hour. The earth has to spin that fast. Again, in order for us to be able to live here, if it was spinning considerably slower, really any significant amount slower than that, we'd burn up on one side of the earth and the other side would freeze before we got turned around. If we went faster than that, it wouldn't give the, the lighted or heated side of the earth long enough to warm up before we're back in the cold again. The speed, not only, not only our rotation around the sun, but the speed of the earth on its axis. Critical to our existence. How does that happen? Is that just a chance? Just by accident? Three quarters of the earth is covered in water. Did you know that? That's not by accident. It's necessary. The earth has to be covered by that much water to serve as a thermal reservoir so that we, again, don't get too hot or too cold. We have exactly the proper amount of barometric or atmospheric pressure bearing down on us, about 15 pounds per square inch, it's necessary, if there was less air pressure on us, we'd explode. Uh, if there's more, we'd collapse. Uh, just again and again and again and again, when you think about all the particulars of our existence in this physical universe, you have to become impressed with the design of God, that He put these things in place to allow our existence here on this planet. But it's not just the... Uh, well, we can, Quote Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show His handiwork. The psalmist said that so long ago. The statement is still true. Look at the heavens and see God and know that He is the Creator. We can also talk about the physical body, about our human bodies. Uh, and, and they're really amazing. In fact, scientists say that the, the human brain and the human nervous system are the most complex arrangement of matter in the universe. Think about that. Your body, the way it works with your brain and nervous system, that accounts for being the most sophisticated and complex arrangement of matter in the universe. It's really amazing. You know, our bodies contain trillions of cells, and each one of those cells contains that encoded information that we've come to hear about more and more these days, DNA. Every human cell, there's trillions of cells in your body. Every cell contains the human DNA. And they tell us that if you were to take one cell, just one human cell, you have trillions of them, take just one, and try, and try to write out the encoded information that's contained within that cellular DNA, that it would take perhaps a thousand volumes the size of an encyclopedia in order to contain that encoded information. And yet God was able to put that into every cell of our body. How did that all happen? How did that come to be? What we're saying is, all of this suggests amazing design. You know, there are more and more scientists who maybe at one time believed in evolution who are now coming around, we're going to talk about evolution in another lesson, so we won't go off too far into that. But more and more scientists are coming around to the understanding that evolution could not work because all that's necessary for human life could never have, could never have happened by accident. They're beginning to acknowledge this argument of intelligent design. 
There's so much intelligent design, evidence in the human body. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. And certainly, that is absolutely true. So, think about the evidence for God. We've talked about cause and effect. Very simple argument, but it points to the existence of God. We see the evidence of design points to the existence of God. Now, again, understand what we're trying to do is build a case. Build the evidence. We can't go to one certain place and say, there's the proof of God. We've got to build the case, but there's lots of evidence to help us conclude that case. Another argument that we can make concerns the moral nature of man. Man has a, a basic moral sense. A basic sense, we might just simply call it a basic sense of fair play. You know, you can debate various aspects of right or wrong, but everyone has some sense of what is right. You know, if, if you're in the grocery store checkout line and you take your buggy and you cut in front of the person in front of you, uh, you know, they're going to say, hey, wait a minute, I was here first. You know, it's understood that it's not right. You get behind me, not in front of me. Basic right and wrong is understood by That's why even criminals in prisons demand fair treatment because they understand that people have that sense of right and wrong. You know, uh, whenever you say, uh, excuse me, that's my seat. I was here first. Or whenever you say, how would you like it if someone treated you the same way you're treating others? Or even if you say to your wife, you know, share some of your popcorn with me. I gave you some of mine. All of that suggests that basic understanding of fair play, of right and wrong. Man is a moral being. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 14 Paul said, For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. I want you to concentrate on the part here where he says there's a law written in the hearts. And I believe that that's the point that Paul was making there. There's a basic moral nature in man. And really, that's what sets man apart from all of the rest of God's creation. You know, matter is not moral. We don't have any moral expectations. We don't have any moral expectations for this lectern tonight. We don't expect it to do right and wrong, because matter, as such, isn't able to do that. Uh, if you have a flat tire on your car on the way home, you're going to jump out and start accusing the tire of having done this? No, tire doesn't have that, that flat tire, as annoying as it might be, is not responsible for itself being flat. It didn't make a decision and follow up on it in order to cause you that grief. We understand that inanimate, non-living things don't have a moral nature, but for that matter, neither do other living things. Plants, you know. Uh, don't, uh, let's say that your car is parked in the driveway tonight and a limb falls out of a tree and puts a dent in the roof. Well, you will be very upset about that, no doubt, but you're not going to call the police and have the tree arrested for dropping a limb on your car. Now, if your neighbor backed his car into your car and put a dent in it, then you're going to try to follow up on that. Because your neighbor is a human. He has a moral nature. But the tree that dropped the limb on your car, just call Kenny and get it fixed and get over it because you, you can't claim anything against the tree. For that matter, if an animal doesn't act, 
Let's say, for instance, that uh, a hawk swoops down in the field and kills a field mouse and eats it. He killed. Are we going to are we going to try to arrest him and put him on trial for having killed? No. The animal has no moral nature, and it's understood. Man, on the other hand, has a moral nature. It's understood, and we act in accordance with that understanding. We hold men accountable for the decisions that they make. And that very moral nature of man, how did it get to be? No, why aren't we? Why why do we expect men to be different than a than a tree or a hawk in the field? Because we understand men are different. How did how did that moral nature get within us? Well, the Scripture says God put it there in us. That there's a law written in the heart. And that moral nature is one of the evidences that there must be a supreme being, a God who created us. Well, then we could talk about man's inclination to worship. Uh, I would admit, I think I would freely admit, that the, the last two of our arguments here, to someone who's not inclined to believe, perhaps wouldn't be as strong an argument, but still when you stop to consider it, it is certainly, I think, interesting, even compelling to consider the fact that man has an inclination to worship something superior to himself. You know, wherever men have been found, in whatever time or place, they have been found worshiping something. Where, from whence did that inclination to worship, where did it come from? Uh, why do men have that basic inclination? Why do they do that? And I think, again, uh, that the, the answer is it comes from God. You know what's interesting? Uh, as anthropologists and others have studied, even remote civilizations, isolated from other places and other people, it's interesting that the oldest tradition, now it's not the unique tradition in the world, obviously, but the oldest tradition is that of men worshiping a single God, one God. Now, we know that throughout the history of human life on earth, Men have perverted the worship and have worshipped multiple gods. But the oldest worship or religion type of um, proof or evidence that has been found is that of men worshipping a single god. And, of course, we would believe that would be logical based upon the fact that's what the Bible taught and that's the way things developed. And so those are some arguments that we could make for the existence of God. Now, remember what we said at the outset. As Christians, for those of us who believe, it's our duty to be able to make a case, to, to present to others this evidence. And so, when we're around others, and unfortunately there are a lot of people in this world who are not believers, when we're around them, and when we have the opportunity to do so, we're expected to be able to make a logical case for God. And I believe the logical case exists there. First of all, how do we get here? We're here. How do we get here? Cause and effect argues that someone must have caused this to be so. Secondly, the incredible design of the universe argues for an intelligent designer. The Bible describes that designer. We believe that it is God. The evidence is, is abundant. Man's moral nature, his basic sort of inborn sense of right and wrong is there, and the inclination found everywhere for men to worship something. All of those things put together form this argument for the existence of God. And so, I could say, I think, without any doubt, and I hope you can too, I believe that there is a God. Now, if you're not a believer, and if you haven't accepted these things, again, we're, we're delighted that you would come study with us about it. 
And we want you to think seriously and carefully about it. As we said earlier, our lessons are going to build one upon another. The first of them is a very simple one about the existence of God. Keep thinking. Keep considering. But remember this. You are also obligated to give an explanation for why you believe. If you do not believe there's a God. So we, we accept the responsibility of trying to prove what we believe. But in fairness, you must also accept the responsibility of explaining what you believe. If you believe there's no God, then that's your burden to prove it. We're going to be talking about that in our lesson on Friday night. But in conclusion, we say we believe. We believe that there is a God. That being the case, what do you do with that? What do you do with that evidence? Well, think about it. If, there, if there's a being so powerful that by speaking the Word, He could create the entire universe. If there's a being so powerful and so intelligent that He could design our human bodies to function so amazingly as they do. If there is a God, and there is, what do I do with that? What do I do with that information? Well, the answer is that we must learn what He's taught and obey it. That just makes sense, doesn't it? If there's a God in heaven, and there is, then the only logical response to that is, I want to find out what he has to say for me, and I want to obey that. Each night this week, we're going to be ending our lesson with that point. If it's true, and the evidence points to that, then the conclusion is that you should accept it, believe, and obey. And if there are any tonight who have not yet become Christians and you desire to obey the simple gospel plan of salvation, we're ready to assist you in that. If you're a Christian already, but you've not been faithfully serving your Lord, that doesn't make sense either. You know, and you need to change that. And if we can assist you in that way, we want to do that as well. You just let us know. And we'll certainly make ourselves available to help you. Appreciate your good attention tonight. Wasn't that an increase to your faith? We can believe in God, and we're not ignorant and backwoods for doing so. The reality is the real evidence demonstrates that God exists. I hope this lesson was beneficial to you, and I hope you'll listen to the other lessons in this series. They're all entitled, We Believe in God, that God created the heavens and the earth, that the Bible is God's inspired word, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and the final one will be, We Believe. But if we didn't believe, and he'll talk about the options that we would have. A great series. I hope you listen to all of them. If you have any questions about God, His existence, the demonstration that He exists and the proof that is out there, or if you just have some questions about the Franklin Church of Christ, let me encourage you to give us a call at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. If somebody's giving you this lesson, let me encourage you. Go to our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com and you can download the other lessons in this series or numerous other sermons and lessons that have been presented at the Franklin Church of Christ. We have audio and outline format and you're allowed to download as many of those as you would like. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.